class welcome back this is bitcoin kindergarten and tonight we got an awesome show for you guys the current price per bitcoin is forty-five thousand and twenty-six dollars per bitcoin and the current block height is six hundred and ninety-six thousand and four hundred and fifty so without further ado Jester, introduce tonight's guests i've got the honor of introducing someone that probably needs no introduction. We've got Greg Foss, and uh, he's a self-described power development slash Bitcoin strategist uh, with about 32 years in high yield credit trading and analysis as a PM and trader. Uh, and uh, Greg, I'll, I'll let you finish that introduction because I'm sure your resume goes on and on. Uh, so thank well, you thanks. so much for joining us. Guys, it's my pleasure. Jim, it's great to, to be on the show with you again. Uh, yeah, listen, I'm old. Uh, I'm 58 years old. I've done a little bit of stuff. Uh, I worked uh, in credit markets for th over 30 years. Uh, I was a hedge fund, uh, a hedge fund uh, portfolio manager uh, during some very, ex you call them exciting. It was quite uh, sphincter tightening, let's put it that way, but uh, in the uh, great financial crisis. So in 2016, I actually put my hand up. Our fund had been bought, and I put my hand up and uh, and said, "Okay, uh, two years to the day after we got bought, I said, uh, time for me to leave. I'm not sure what I want to do, but I don't, I, I, you know, I don't want to be in the markets anymore." And as uh, fate would have it, uh, an investor in a company that was looking for seed capital to bring a Bitcoin fund to the Toronto Stock Exchange, so a closed-end Bitcoin fund to the Toronto Stock Exchange, asked me for seed capital, and I said. You know what is bitcoin uh, you know i'd heard of it as everyone does you think that it's uh some sort of uh you know uh i'm not going to use the word ponzi but certainly I would. then i saw the blockchain in action as an engineer i was like oh my god this is this is real and it was the solution to 30 years of searching for the solution to the fiat ponzi so uh yeah 2016 i found bitcoin i wasn't trading credit professionally anymore, meaning I wasn't managing money for other people. I still do it for my own account, but I found Bitcoin. Uh, it solves so many problems and I'm so happy to be in this community because uh, I'm still learning as well. Um, it is the solution to so many problems uh, and uh, I'm excited to be part of a power company now where we have, uh, we take natural gas, we run it through a 35 megawatt jet engine. So basically, you know, this is a big ass turbine. And we provide power for any sorts of off takers. But the recently we've had a lot of Bitcoin miners as clients, including HUD 8, which has contracted uh, over 100 megawatts of power from us. So, you know, we're in the Bitcoin mining business. I'm the I'm the the guy that understands Bitcoin. They understand electricity and together we make a pretty cool team to try and bring uh, Bitcoin mining to North America, which is so important. Man. Awesome. Uh, Greg, we, we will definitely get into the, the energy talk later on in the show.
but I think first of all, I'd like to ask you to as simply as possible explain to us youngsters um, why do you think the credit markets are so important to be watching right now? Because I sure. mean, personally, you you've been trading longer than most of us have been alive, and uh -huh. so you definitely have more experience with us young Bitcoiners, and so. I, I'm just trying to fully wrap my head around that idea. Yeah. I've listened to, I don't know how many of your podcasts the last couple of days to kind of grasp the idea, but if you could as simply try to explain for the class why you think it's sure. so important to be watching that. So, well, great question. Um, very simply, guys um, and ladies, it's uh, credit is the most important because for two reasons. Firstly, because credit is a much bigger market um, in relative size. The credit markets are at least four to five times the size of the equity markets. Um, they are typically dominated by uh, large financial institutions. In other words, retail mom and pop does not play a meaningful role in the market. Uh, the reason more than anything that they are more important though is because in any capital structure of a publicly traded company, even privately traded company for that matter, the debt which is traded ranks in priority of claim over the equity. So very simply in Finance 101, unless the debt of a company is worth 100 cents on the dollar or the par value claim, unless that debt is worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equity is worth zero. So that leads to opportunities for hedge funds like myself to take positions in the debt. And then if you want to hedge that position in a subordinated claim like the equity, you can buy put options or you can short the stock outright. You can do all sorts of pairs trades in the subordinate structure. And the what tends to happen is when the credit markets get sick, meaning there's, you know, contagion, if there's, uh, uh, sovereign risk that flows down into the corporate level, um, the corporate guys will go out and short or pretty well destroy the equity markets and the poor equity guys have no idea what's going on, right? They're just getting blindsided left, right and center. And unfortunately, the equity guys are mom and pop traders who don't have access to debt prices and, and sophisticated trading models. So, you know, you need to know what's going on in the debt markets at all times. And then you take it to the bank funding level and, you know, capitalism is built on credit. And when the bank funding, meaning interbank deposits and the, and the various uh, instruments that are traded between banks to provide liquidity to the system to allow them to make loans, when that seizes up, again, there's a cascading effect down into the subordinate markets. So, you know, if the gurgling, I say, in the credit markets takes place, the equity markets get flung around like a rag doll. And, you know, credit is a dog, equity is the tail. And when that dog gets upset, that tail goes crazy. And these poor guys in the equity markets, again, they have no idea what hits them. They ended up getting destroyed because they don't see flows from the bigger players in the in the credit market. So credit is the grease or the liquidity that, uh, that uh, uh, facilitates the plumbing of the capital markets and uh, equity is nothing more than a subordinate claim. Equity is a, call it a derivative of credit. If you think, for example, that you have a junk bond of a, of a given company and that's a negative pejorative, 
But that pejorative, if the, if the same company has equity, well, if the bonds are junk, then the equity is super junk. And it doesn't matter. It's a pejorative. You just have to price each one accordingly and be paid for the risk at the various parts of the capital structure. But remember, though, that, again, if the debt is not worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equity is worth zero. So you have all these knuckleheads running around with AMC debt right now versus AMC uh, uh, equity. You have all these guys. I'm holding it until forever. The, the right play was to buy the bonds at one cent on the dollar, not go into the equity and read the Reddit forum that says, oh, AMC is going to survive, so therefore I'm going to play the equity. Did you know that the the bonds of AMC were trading at one one hundredth of their claim? That's where you're supposed to go if you're going to make a risk-adjusted bet on AMC. Not into the equity, because until those bonds traded 100 cents on the dollar, the equity, in theory, has, you know, no claim. So this is why you always need to uh, to look at the equity markets. They are the grease, excuse me, the credit markets. They are the grease of the financial system. And equity, again, is a bit of a residual claim. Ooh, dropping bombs already. Um, Greg, I've been seeing you doing a lot of tweets lately on Contagion. Uh do you want to first maybe explain to people what contagion is and sure. then maybe give people an idea of, of what's currently happening happening in the markets? Okay. Yeah. Wow. You guys are getting, you know, you've, you've jumped a couple of levels here, but okay. So credit is again, it's the top of the stack. It's the first claim. It's, it's the thing that gets paid before anything else gets paid. It's also reflected very simply. If I give you the following statement, if you are long credit, means you own a lot of bonds uh, of various corporations or mortgage-backed securities or uh, um, governments or provinces or municipalities, you are essentially short volatility, okay? You need to understand that when you have bought a bond, you have exposed yourself to risk. And exposing yourself to risk meaning means you are short vol. Um, when you're short vol, you guys have looked at the volatility charts of the S&P 500, for example. They, it, it tends to hover around 14% annualized, maybe ticks down a little more. But when the world implodes, like it does in 2007, 2008, 2009, or recently with the COVID crisis, that vol absolutely explodes from 14% annualized up to like 100%. Think if you're short and something goes from 14 to 100 you're getting carved, okay? You're absolutely losing your shirt. And that causes contagion everywhere because you're scrambling to cover your short equity, excuse me, your short vol position. It, it, it's, it, I don't want to get too technical, but contagion starts as a, uh, you know, a loss of confidence in the system. It's reflected in people reaching for volatility as protection think of yourself as reaching for options because when you own an option you own volatility and this whole contagion is nothing more than a domino effect where the confidence in one system leaks out of that system or call it a market and then they start pounding on another market so for example if you own emerging market debt and the emerging market starts getting beaten up they typically run to the high yield market and start shorting high yield against their emerging market exposure as a hedge to their long emerging market exposure. And then it's just a contagion, okay? It goes emerging market to high yield to investment grade to corp to uh, to um, 
govies to provinces, everything widens on a spread basis. The contagion in credit is much more apparent than in, uh, in, in, a, in a basket of equities, but ultimately what gets whipped around again is the equity market because all of these guys can run to the equity market and purchase a vol from the equity market. So that's what contagion is. It's about guys running and playing whack-a-mole because they're long something in the in the credit land, which means there's short volatility. And as we all know, when vol increases, it means that risk is increasing and they need to run out and buy protection from various uh, uh, markets. Woo. Thank you. I think you lost half the class there, Greg, but... I don't uh, mean to. It's, it's no, quite I think simple, it's awesome. It, you know, well, here's the thing. It, it's as simple as this. What is contagion? It's you see contagion in, in, in digital assets, right? I mean, you know, the correlation amongst digital assets is pretty, pretty apparent, at least to me. Well, that's contagion. When, you know, when the benchmark Bitcoin uh, falls, uh, the price of Bitcoin, generally the altcoins fall as well. I don't give a shit about the shit coins. I don't look at them or I watch them. I don't trade them. But the point is that's contagion. That's the same sort of thing. That's within an asset class. And basically what I'm talking is cross asset class. So contagion is all measured by the confidence in the system. And I'll leave you with this. When perception of risk is lowest, like it is now, oh, the Fed's always going to be there. You know, volatility has re returned to historic uh, levels. When I say historic, average levels, because the Fed has backstopped everything. When perception of risk is uh, low, like it is now, because vol is low, actual risk is very high because everything's priced to perfection. There's not a bunch of things that are on fire sales where you're, you're pretty well guaranteed to make your money. And then... And the, the flip side, and I'm looking at this from right now, I'm feeling like this is Spock pounding his head <laughs> against the table. It's not that difficult, fellas. You, you need to understand that, that when perception of risk is highest, when the world is unraveling, that's when risk is actually the lowest because you're able to buy stuff when the prices don't reflect the value. When tr things trade for multiples of cash flow that are a lot lower than they trade for right now. Again, think of yourself when you're confident, you're, you're, you're all bold up. Everyone's bullish about Bitcoin. What's the reality? Probably that it's more risky than it usually is, right? Because everyone's going in the same direction. It's the same across all markets and it's all due to human nature or human behavior where, you know, you look for confirmation bias and all that stuff. And then when that someone pops the balloon, that's when uh, things get really ugly. So don't fool yourself as to when perception of risk is lowest, actual risk is highest. And then the flip side, when you can't find a buyer for anything, like in March of 2009, well, you could probably put your hand up in the air and buy just about anything. And over time, you're going to make money on it just because everything's for, uh, for sale at fire sale prices. Awesome. So, Greg, currently, what is your view on the markets at large so yeah i'm pretty uh quite honestly look first of all the fed will never be able to taper okay they have boxed themselves in so successfully that any of this talk about we're thinking about thinking about tapering just call out that bullshit. all right they cannot possibly taper any talk of tapering will send the markets into a tailspin like we saw back in the mid uh you know 2010s uh 
Why? Because the markets are addicted to the Fed backstop. I'm uh, I'm pretty bearish. I'm bearish for a number of reasons. I think the Fed does not have the fa the firepower to defend the markets anymore. They've basically used up everything they have. Now they could continue to print money. The problem is, I think the gig is up on that too. People are getting way smarter as to the impacts of continuing to print money. So I'm not bullish on the markets. I'm very bullish on Bitcoin. I'm not bullish on equity markets. I think bonds right now are for absolute fools, okay? After having traded bonds for 30 years, anybody who owns any type of bond right now, uh, I'll, I'll just use my tagline, they failed grade 11 math, okay? It's, it's just, it's disgraceful how stupid some of these ma money managers are, but they have to own the bonds. It's in their, uh, in their uh, investment mandate. So uh, yeah, bearish overall, why? Because I think the Fed has actually lost control of the situation. They're trying to talk up a smart game or a, uh, you know, a, a confident game. But the market's smarter than that. They're they're going to call their bluff. And so if you look at things like uh, the number of new the number of Nasdaq lows that are hitting, you know, your 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 annual low, a uh, number of different stocks that are hitting their annual low versus the index hitting the high, it's never been higher. And these types of things indicate lack of breadth across the markets, which mean that you know there's a couple of big stocks that are driving the index higher, but overall. Uh, confidence in the market is leaking. So lots of things to be worried about in the equity side. Bonds, again, don't own bonds. It is absolutely certain you're going to get carved on bonds. And uh, then you got to look for alternatives. Yeah, uh, I think everyone in class here is probably not owning any bonds. I think they're all in your on How about this? How about your parents, though? This is the yeah, problem, right? That's, that's if what you I was talk about to your say. parents... Yeah, and look, your parents all own bonds because they've always owned bonds and they have financial advisors who have always owned bonds and chances are those financial advisors don't even understand bond math. So if you guys who are listening and you, you know, maybe when I was your ages, I was able to get in into my mom and dad's investment portfolios and trying to give them some advice. Um, again, that money, let's hope some of that money will be yours someday. Uh, you should take a keen interest in what their exposure is at, at, uh, the parent level. Um, even if some firefighters that I've talked to, you know, they're, they're calling out their own pension plans. Why does my pension plan own bonds? Like that's a loser, loser investment. And yeah, you know, you just have to, just have to call out the people that do own them. Awesome. Um, you, you talked about the. Uh, your your tagline of 11th grade math. And I think uh, if you could just get in a little bit, maybe not too complicated, but if you could talk about the inevitability of the debt spiral, and okay. then and then we will transfer into some more. Uh, not, sure, okay. So look, I, I'm loving these comments. So LOL, Greg, I'm a former financial advisor and you were dead on. Most do not understand yield curves are real versus nominal. I'm gonna fill in the blanks, real versus nominal returns. This is true, guys. Um, you know, math tends to scare people to begin with. And then when you get into bond math, it's like, you, you know, you see people's eyes glaze over. And this is pretty sad because it's not that difficult. But more importantly, if you don't know what you're invested in and how it how you are exposed to the risks, chances are you should not be invested in this stuff. 
And then you'll say, well, my financial advisor's advising me. And then I can ask the same questions to the financial advisors. And I've done it for 30 years. And these clowns don't know what they're saying either. Because, you know, who, who are investment advisors? Well, I just decided to get into investment advising because my father was an investment advisor or something like that, right? So, you know, this is complex stuff, lots of money at risk. And half of these clowns have no idea the true risk exposures that they are sitting on. They're advised by their firms to take, you know, 60% equities, 40% bonds, and they just sort of throw the 40% into bonds into some sort of bond mutual fund and just forget about it. And that's not the way you manage risk. So then you asked me the question about uh, the inevitability of the fiat spiral. Uh, you know, I call it a debt spiral, but we, we might as well call it a death spiral as well. So I try and explain it as simply as this. Um, total global debt in the world relative to total global GDP is about 400%. That means there's four times more debt in the world than there is global sales or the tax base to pay for that debt. So at a, at a, at a um, ratio of four to one, if you put an average coupon on that debt, because that's what a debt instrument is, it's a contract to pay a, an interest coupon over the life of the bond. If you put an average coupon on that debt, and I'm talking all the different types of debt, so it'll be a weighted average coupon. I'm going to guess that that weighted average coupon right now is about 3%. Okay, I think that's light, but to make the math easy, a 3% coupon that's a weighted average coupon across corporates, across munis, across uh, bank debt, across all the debt that's outstanding. If that coupon's 3% and it's in your numerator and your numerator is four times bigger than your denominator or your tax base, that means four times 3%, your global GDP has to grow at 12% annualized just to keep pace with the in interest obligation. Now, who thinks that global GDP is gonna grow at 12%? I'm, I'm pretty sure none of you guys, because it's never done it consistently. And we're not even gonna do it this year af after coming out of the worst global financial crisis due to COVID. So it's impossible that global GDP will grow fast enough to keep pace with the interest coupon or the organic growth of the debt. The debt balloon is expanding just because of the organic growth of the coupon. That's even before Biden gets a hold of his trillion dollar spending things and as well as you know all the other uh, nations around the world that have uh, uh, debt financed uh, deficits. It's impossible, guys, that the economy can grow fast enough to keep pace with the uh, organic and the additional debt that is being added in the numerator. And therefore, you need to print money to solve that, uh, that gap. Okay, it's that simple. You need to fill the error term of the formula that would match funds in uh, weighed against funds in would be your tax base weight weighed against funds out, which would be your debt payments. Those two things will not add up. How do you make that balance? You have to print money. Very simply, we will never be able to stop printing money. 
There was a chance 10 years ago that this debt spiral could have been contained, but no politician gets into office and says, I'm going to come in and I'm going to be absolutely uh, frugal. We're going to cut all uh, benefits to the population. Do you think he's going to be in office after four years? Not even close, right? We're a bunch of spoiled pansies. My generation, the boomer generation, is the most selfish bunch of fucks that I've ever seen in my life. Okay? And Jim, I'm afraid to say it, but, you know, we, have, we, we are really, really pathetic as far as uh, stealing from the future of our kids. So, you know, we've grown up as a, as a bunch of uh, uh, spoiled brats, and we're just used to being coddled by the printing of the money machine. And, and that's the math behind it. It's impossible to grow out of the DEBT debt spiral that is going to become a death spiral. Wow. Uh, if, if that doesn't get people stacking Bitcoin, I, I don't know what will. Earlier today, Greg, I was listening to one of your podcast appearances. I think it was with Stefan Libera. And okay. I, got, I got the idea of, have you seen There Will Be Blood? I well, know. Uh, well, there's the scene. I'm I'm pretty sure most of the people in the class have seen it, but there's a scene where um, it's like about oil, and there's a scene at the end where he he's pointing at uh, one of his partners essentially, and he says, um, "Your your oil well is is empty, and we're drinking your milkshake." And in my head, I yeah, someone put it someone put uh, it in the chat. I see and, it now. Yeah, and um, in my head when you were speaking. I was uh, imagining that Boomers was the kid crying and that Bitcoiners <laughs> is the guy pointing at them. And it just made so much sense after hearing what you're talking about, Boomers and, and the debt cycle or the debt spiral. And it's just, it's, I'm so happy that we have Bitcoin because I listened to your, oh, yeah. your uh, episode with Dylan and I, I share the same same view. It's like, what would we be doing without Bitcoin? And and your idea of Bitcoin as default insurance, it's it's just I think that's such a great way to frame it for people because most people are completely unaware of what's going on. And if you can just kind of plant a few seeds in their brains with with the right memes, um, uh, that's what we're all about. And I, I think your idea of default insurance, like. It's it's sure. such a good idea. So maybe you well, could just so, go over that for a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, very simply, right? Bitcoin to me. So I was looking for this solution literally for 30 years because when I graduated and I got a hit on this. Okay. So I was in engineering at McGill. Uh, I was there for four years. I uh, got my degree, but I, I really knew that I didn't want to be a practicing engineer. So I was lucky enough to apply to a U.S. school. Uh, I had enough money to apply to one U.S. school for an MBA. I never would have gotten into that school if I was a U.S. citizen, but the fact that they were building a international business program and were looking for, for students around the world, including Canada, I had the marks, but I didn't have the, the work experience. I guess they waived the work experience for me because I was probably the youngest guy in the class, uh, but I was lucky, uh, you know, um, Met some really great Americans at Cornell. Two years MBA, uh, fantastic experience. Uh, understood the culture between the two different schools. Why didn't I stay there? That was one of the questions. Look, um, 
you know, I wanted to come back to Canada and make a difference. I, I fully paid for my education. It's not like I took money and ran back to Canada. I mean, it cost me a lot of money. I borrowed and borrowed money to, 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 to invest in my education. Uh, so I went to school in the U.S. I did not have, uh, I had the opportunity to work on Wall Street, but I did not work on Wall Street right out of school. I did later on in my career. And as a little aside, just what did I experience from the U.S., uh, you know, the culture and I, uh, uh, one of my roommates from a Cornell was killed in 9-11. So different things that a Canadian otherwise probably wouldn't have had exposure to. Uh, great school. Yeah, someone pointed out it was an Ivy school. Um, I didn't stay down there, but I certainly traded uh, multiple billions of dollars of debt over my career with Wall Street. So I'm sure Wall Street made a pretty penny off of me as a counterparty. Um, so I, I did uh, give some money back to the U.S. system, but they gave some money to me as well uh, on some good trades. Uh, the point is, um, we're joined at the hip, Canada and the U S and, uh, uh, what was I looking for? Well, when I started in 1988 at the Royal bank of Canada, uh, my first experience working at the largest financial institution in Canada called the Royal bank of Canada was that the Royal bank of Canada was insolvent, or that's a bit of a technical term, but it was bankrupt. Can you imagine? Royal Bank of Canada in 1988 was bankrupt. And Royal Bank of Canada wasn't alone. So was Chase Manhattan, Manufacturers Hanover, Bankers Trust, all the big money center banks in the US in exactly the same position. And why was that? It's because they had all made loans to Latin American countries that had defaulted. They These were US dollar-based loans, and these countries got punished when the US dollar strengthened against their local currencies and they couldn't make the interest payments. And these billions of dollars of loans were trading at uh, uh, about 25% of the claim or 25% of par value. And the Royal Bank of Canada, this doesn't sound like a lot of money these days, but back in 1988, the Royal Bank of Canada had about $4 billion worth of loans to lesser developed countries. And they were trading at 25 cents on the dollar. So that means you'd have to write off 75% of the loan and 75% of $4 billion is $3 billion. And if you went to the book value of equity, which is where a bank writes off their bad loans, which is the book value of equity, Royal Bank of Canada did not even have enough book value of equity to absorb those losses. And again, this was exactly the same thing at Citibank and all the money center banks in the U.S. And so there was a plan that was formulated by Treasury Secretary Nicholas Brady in 1988, which was an accounting gimmick that allowed these banks not to have to uh, mark these loans down to market and then essentially take these huge losses. It was a brilliant plan. It was based on financial gimmickry, as I said, or accounting gimmickry. It was my first exposure to the Fiat Ponzi. And I'm like, you don't learn about this in school. This is dangerous. This is a financial system that was on the brink in 1988. Then I was still in the markets in 1998 when long-term capital, same thing happened. And then 2008, when really the world was on, on the uh, edge of disaster, right? And I really did think the world was over. And then 10 years later, sort of like a bus comes around, we, you know, just about 10 years after that, we hit COVID. And throughout this whole period, all that happens is the risk in the financial system gets transferred to the risk of the Federal Reserve or the central banks because losses are socialized. 
on Wall Street, on Bay Street, that's the Canadian Wall Street. Same thing. The guys at long-term capital, you know, they got bailed out. By and large, all the banks that made these uh, uh, subprime mortgage loans, they got bailed out in 2008, right? The trouble, the TARP program stat stood for uh, Troubled Asset Relief Program, where the Fed basically bought all this crap off the balance sheets of the banks in order to maintain the solvency of the financial system. And that's what's happened. All the risk from the financial system over time has been transferred to the balance sheets of the central banks. And now there's game over. There's nowhere else to transfer that risk to. So they're printing money. They're printing money to water down the risk, to dilute the, the risk. But what does that do to your dollar? It penalizes the population. We know these arguments, but that's how it happens. So I always look to the credit markets and I have valued Bitcoin on a fairly technical basis, the intrinsic value of Bitcoin using the credit default swap markets for sovereign debt. And I've written a paper on it and so, you know, I've had some nice feedback and various people refer to it, but I intrinsically value Bitcoin today at over 150,000 US dollars of Bitcoin. And that's just using the credit default swap market. And that valuation will change and increase as the credit quality of the countries continues to decrease. So today, Bitcoin's worth 150,000 by that very, I'm not going to call it layman evaluation, but if I ever have to hear one more person say Bitcoin has no intrinsic value, I'm going to jump out and pull their fucking vocal cords out of their throat with my own, my own hand, okay? Because these fucking knuckleheads have no idea how valuable insurance is against a system that is continually bankrupt. Okay, so one question, Pierre Poiliev, is he going to become a Bitcoiner? Um, how, when I say no comment, what does that mean to you guys? And I'll leave it there. Um, so uh, <laughs> let's just say that I talked to him and I'm a huge fan of his. So is Jeff Booth, and I'll leave it there. Um, okay, Bitcoin is the anti-fiat. You need insurance in a portfolio against the contagion of the fiat system. We've talked about that. So Bitcoin is the best store of value. I don't need to repeat what Ross Stevens says. I don't need to repeat what Michael Saylor says. These guys say it all more eloquently than me. The only thing I bring to the table is a credit perspective because there's very few people that have gone through the experience that I've gone through over the last 30 years. And all I can do is write a paper about it and put my analysis out there and let people poke holes in it if they want to I don't care. I haven't gotten that much feedback that, that doesn't agree with it. You know, you'll still hear Peter Schiff saying it has no intrinsic value. And I would also say he's the most conflicted analyst out there when it comes to Bitcoin because he wants gold to go higher. But then you'll get a real stupid person like Steve Hankey saying it has no intrinsic value. And you'll look at Steve Hankey and say, you're 80 fucking years old. You probably don't even know where you left your car keys. And you're writing some garbage drivel because you're employed by the IMF and stuff like that, right? So it's just, it's just really sick to listen to these people who are sort of my age, who know they're conflicted and saying this stuff. And by the way, if they don't know they're conflicted, man, oh man, you shouldn't have any money with them because they really are outright stupid. So do you think that Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger don't know 
how conflicted they are when they're saying that it's rat poison squared. Who do you think the largest owner of the financial services is out there? Yeah, that's right. It's Berkshire Hathaway, right? If Bitcoin succeeds in disintermediating the financial system, they're the ones that get carved. So don't you think they may say stuff like this as they're trying to defend their legacy positions and turf? So you always got to look at it through the other lens. Um, I would just say this. Bitcoin is the best asymmetric return opportunity that I've ever seen in trading risk over my 32 years. That is to say, if Bitcoin goes to a price that I think it's going to attain, and my price target is relatively conservative, it's over 2 million bucks of Bitcoin, you have never seen trades like this, or I at least haven't in my career. You don't get the opportunity to make hundreds of times your money and have relatively low downside. This is just an asymmetry or an asymmetric trade that I have never seen in my life. And I need to go out there and tell people that you cannot have no exposure to this trade. You need to have at least some exposure because if you have zero exposure to this trade, you're actually taking a tremendous amount of risk relative to having a proper portfolio weight. And it's as simple as that. That applies to your parents. It applies to pension funds. It applies to central banks. It applies to, you know, school teachers, firefighters. It applies to everybody. And yet, who's educating them? Well, you read it in the, in the press and Joe Weisenthal and all these other conflicted guys are saying, oh my goodness, you're going to lose all your money. No, no, no. You're more at risk of not participating in the upside if you have zero exposure. It's that simple. So any, any questions on that subject? That you start in the credit markets, you need to hedge yourself against 30 years of experience that I've seen in credit markets, and then very simply, allocate accordingly. It's not zero. And I'm not saying put 100% in, but I'm saying to the people that own zero right now, God darn it, you got to get some exposure. Call me when you're at 5%. Then, you know, maybe you go to 10. And don't forget, getting these big pension funds to 10% exposure in Bitcoin, the price of Bitcoin goes from here to over $700,000 very quickly when these big funds need to get involved. So, you know, again, that's the asymmetry of the trade. Um, you always got to look at, uh, at, at, at fund flows and, and, and new onboarding of, uh, my God, you know, onboarding of countries. What Jack Mahler's did in El Salvador is a thing of beauty. I'm talking to the Bitcoiners on the ground in Guatemala and El Salvador that are implementing the Lightning Network for these merchants. It's happening, guys. In real time, you are seeing a software implementation in a country. And this is unprecedented. And yet, what does the press say? Well, you get one Fitch rating agency that says, well, this is a risk. And uh, uh. Well, do you think that rating agency might also be a little conflicted, right? So it's all part of the bullshit of, you know, trying to maintain the legacy financial system. And I was at Bretton Woods last week, and I was lucky enough to talk. And one of the trades I just let slip was the following. I can't believe anyone in their right mind owns Western Union stock right now. Think about how that platform is going to be disintermediated by the Lightning Network and remittances and whatnot. 
And I used to work at a hedge fund, but that would be one of my pocket short trades. Western Union is going to get destroyed. And who do you think the biggest holders of Western Union are? The first biggest holder is Vanguard, and the second largest holder is BlackRock. So is it funny that Larry Fink of BlackRock is calling Bitcoin ESG unfriendly? Do you think he might be saying that because he's somehow protecting his Western Union exposure? You think, you think there's a possibility of that? Well, I'll tell you with 100% certainty, there is people that are doing stuff like that. So don't overthink this. This is all about exposure to an asymmetry to the upside that I've never seen before in 30 years. I'm not 100% certain. I do have my probability weightings that I could run through some expected value analysis with you, but it's that simple. Don't own zero. And if your parents own zero because they're too smart by a half, sit your parents down and look at them and say, dad, that $50 that you earned in 1950, what's it worth right now? And he'll look at you and go, gosh, I never thought of it that way. The value that they have stored in fiat money the value of their time and energy that they spent in 1950, I guess that's a little long ago. How about in 1965? They, you know, dad, the, the dollars that you earned in 1965, how much is it worth to you today? And was the value of your time and energy, was it conserved over or stored properly over that time if it's in fiat money? And the, the answer is always no. Ooh, fire, Greg. All right, we got some questions um one is from our buddy sean harris <laughs> hey i love sean havers big sean big sean harris yeah big man. sean harris so he goes uh in your opinion what's the catalyst for contagion so it's always liquidity being withdrawn from the system okay so every unwind a liquidity unwind starts with a crisis in confidence that bleeds into people redeeming things like their mutual funds, their money market mutual funds. It bleeds into interbank deposits, not trading and funding loans at banks that don't have their own deposits and need to purchase deposits in the open market. So just think of it when people are running to take their money out of markets and store them sometimes even in their mattresses, that withdrawal of liquidity starts contagion and it happens quickly, right? And it's hard to plug. It's like putting your finger in a dike and you, you plug one hole and all of a sudden another market springs a leak, you know, and all of these, there's always places to look for these warning signals. Right now, the markets are flush with liquidity. I know that the Fed cannot stop providing that liquidity, which means the dollar will continue to debase on an accelerated basis. But what can still happen? is, for example, people lose confidence in a country. And what's happening in South Africa right now, what's happening in these weaker countries reflects a crisis of confidence in those countries. And sometimes that contagion spills over into neighboring countries or trading partners and the like. And that's the kind of contagion you always have to look for, okay? It's a crisis of confidence in one market that flows into another market and causes people to uh, accelerate the pace of withdrawals. So, you know, selling begets selling, right? That's an old adage. And, and it's just because, you know, if you're sitting in a chair where you're managing money 
and your unit holders are like, we want our money back. And your margin clerk comes over to you and you're like, I got all these great trades on. I just hope I don't have to unwind them. And you get a tap on the shoulder from your margin clerk saying, Foss, we got to deliver 50 million bucks in T plus two. You're like, fuck me, because I have these great trades on, but I haven't been able to capitalize on them. And now I'm getting redeemed. I need to deliver cash back. So that's the type of things that cause contagion. Ooh. Here's a question. Greg, did you say banks buy deposits from other banks? Correct. That's called the interbank deposit market. Can you elaborate on that? So yeah, so look, banks that, let's say you're a, re you're a bank, you attract a lot of retail deposits that you don't have as many uh, loans to make against those deposits, i.e., you know, you've, you're, you've got a big retail base. Um, you can go out into the, into the interbank market and basically put those deposits up for sale where another bank that needs them to fund their loan because they don't have their own retail banking system potentially they'll buy those deposits from you so that's called the interbank deposit market uh, i've heard of selling credit risk but are you talking about fractional reserve lending of deposits or something else sort of i don't want to get too much into the specifics of it but why would a, buy, a bank buy deposits? Very simply, they have loans that they can make and earn a spread on that loan over the cost of the deposits. And that's what banks do, right? They take in deposits at a level of X and they lend uh, on loans at X plus 5%. And that 5% is called a spread. And that spread is what makes banks money. It's called your margin. And as long as there's no default on that loan, that 5% is worth a lot of money. Problem is when there's defaults on the loan. Thank you. You're welcome, BAP. Awesome. And which, Jim, which markets are effective? Yeah. In what order? Bonds, equity, gold risk? Okay. Great question, sir, for Jim. Look, again, it always starts in the credit markets. Um, and, and remember, shit flows downhill, right? So credit is at the top of the, at the, top of the spectrum. It has the first call on the uh, value of any uh, company or the assets of any company. So if they worry about the credit markets, it flows down to the equity markets. We talked about that. How do you hedge against an exposure in a risky loan? Well, you short the equity of the same company. Again, because if the equity's not, if the loan isn't worth 100 cents on the dollar, the equity's worth zero. Um, it, the correlations between other markets is a little, uh, you know, real estate is much more illiquid. Um, real estate depends on a lot of things like interest rates, uh, uh, but even now it's, you know, the real estate market, people are looking for hard assets. I mean, that's a theme that people don't quite, and you know, it's not quite used in that terminology, but it's the same, you know, they know that real estate prices are, they think that real estate prices are going up. Therefore they want exposure to real estate. Real estate prices are not going up when you measure them in other hard assets. In fact, if you measure it in the hardest asset ever created, which is Bitcoin, real estate looks like a piece of crap, right? But when you measure it in this useless fiat unit of account, it looks, and people say, oh, I'm making so much money on my house. You're not really making the money. It's just that the value of the, your unit of account is going in the other direction. It's being debased. So in order of priority, it's always bonds or credit that uh, ranks at the top of the cap, at the top of the capital structure. And therefore, if there's problems in the credit markets, it flows downhill as I've said, so equities are the tail and credit is the dog. Awesome. Uh, we got some few questions in our YouTube chat. 
This one is by Daniel. He asked, how does an inexperienced trader watch or learn to track the credit markets? Yeah, it's not that easy. I've tried to send out uh, some, use, look, you need a Bloomberg <laughs> almost. Yeah, it's a horrible thing to say, but these are all institutionally traded markets. Uh, you know, you, you can read publications that quote Bloomberg, the beautiful Bloomberg graphs and everything that are available, but you know, you just can we'll look at indices. There's high yield credit in indices is called the HYCDX. That's a, uh, a credit default swap market where widening spreads indicate more concern about risk, meaning it's a risk off trade. Uh, so narrowing spreads indicates confidence, widening spreads in, indicates concerns. And you'll see those flow across the various markets from the, uh, you know, high yield will leak into investment grade, will leak into municipal bonds, will leak into sovereign CDS. So the one I look at for Bitcoin is the sovereign CDS markets. There's one on uh, uh, you know, a fairly accurate uh, uh, webpage uh, that you can watch sovereign credit default swap spreads on. Um, but, you know, really this again is is much more of a Bloomberg related, uh, what am I looking at there? Average sales price, single family home in Bitcoin. Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So look, um, yeah, it's it's a Bloomberg, it's it's a it's a, a esoteric market. Uh, you can, you know, I try and tweet out anytime I'm seeing stuff. There's right now not a whole lot to be worried about. I am sort of worried about the Chinese situation. Because why? Because China is, well, first of all, how does the court system work in China? Yeah, I don't have a lot of confidence. And when debt gets distressed, you have to count on the rule of law to defend your claim in, in a court system. I certainly wouldn't be running out and owning a bunch of Chinese bonds and then try and settle those claims in a, in a court you know, that I have no confidence in. So the rule of law in North America is paramount uh, in the credit markets. So right now what's happening in the high yield markets in China, it's not a really developed market. It's getting shredded because of this Evergrande uh, real estate exposure. Uh, good on them, you know. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're a bunch of knuckleheads. Uh, Over-levered, communist, uh, not developed, and then the government intervention. So would I ever touch that market? No, I wouldn't, but some people do. Will it bleed into the more developed markets? Sometimes it will. There's no question. So you got to look at stuff like that, the periphery. Awesome. Uh, BAP has a question, and then we're going to transition into some pleb questions. Wynikus is DMing me. So BAP's question is, how can a pleb hedge a hyper-long Bitcoin portfolio in the event we get toppy within a cycle without selling? I've read from Arthur Hayes his barbell strategy of long BTC and short long bond trade. Can that be accomplished with TLT puts? Any other ideas? Let me try and think of Arthur Hayes' thing here. Long BTC and short. I mean, that's almost doubling up. I don't think that's a hedge. I think that's actually adding. Like So if you're short long bonds... Um, you know that's that's basically a risk. I, I'm not going to tell him how 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 we uh, uh, quantified that as being long volatility and short volatility. Um, being short the long bond, if you have if that's an interest rate uh, a viewpoint versus or an inflation viewpoint versus a credit viewpoint. I don't care much about inflation. Bitcoin goes higher or lower, excuse me. Bitcoin goes higher regardless of whether inflation goes lower or higher. 
That's only mathematics. I think all this focus on inflation is misguided. I think you need to look at the credit quality of sovereign debt as the most important factor, not the inflation concerns. And that's something that's going to take a long time to penetrate the psyche of, excuse me, the credit managers out there. Because you never, you know, it's very hard to find anybody that believes the United States can default. And I would uh, concur that that's a very low probability, but it's not a zero probability. And all it takes is a little bit of questioning as to whether, like we saw in the subprime mortgage, oh, don't worry, housing, housing, price, uh, housing stresses are contained, housing stresses are contained. Uh-oh. Housing stresses, I think, are contained. Uh, I hope they're contained. They're not fucking contained. Oh, my God, sell everything, okay? That's the way shit happens, right? Everybody pretends that there's no fire in the theater until they're all getting smoked out and they're running for the exit. So you got to buy your insurance. You don't buy fire insurance on your house when your house is already burning, right? You got to buy the insurance before that happens. So I view Bitcoin as being insurance against the credit markets, as I've said. Um... Is that, does that mean that when the world unravels uh, the next time that Bitcoin doesn't sell off? Yeah, it probably will sell off in the short term because people need to raise money. They're being redeemed. Sometimes they sell their winners. But over time, people re will realize they need to have exposure to non-fiat assets. So, um, you know, the question was, uh, how do you hedge an ultra-long Bitcoin? I, I hate to say this, but... Maybe if you have to hedge it, maybe you have too much of it, right? Like I have a long time preference and I, you would, oh, I shouldn't say that. I have a, I, I'm, I'm not looking at these in a short, I, I have increased my uh, ability not to look at Bitcoin on a daily basis, right? I, I don't, I, I have this trade on for 20 years. And if I don't have this trade on for 20 years, and I have too much exposure to Bitcoin, maybe the way you hedge it is you lighten up on that trade. And I'm not telling the guys that have 100% exposure to Bitcoin to lighten up. But honestly, if you're looking at ways to hedge that because you're concerned about it, there's an old trading expression. The best hedge is a sale. Don't try and complicate and hedge and wedge yourself with another, you know, oh, well, I'll hedge this long exposure with this short exposure. What ends up happening is you lose money on both trades. If your weighting is not correct, then sell a bit of your exposure rather than trying to hedge it. Does that make sense? Yeah, I it makes sense to me. And and BAP says, uh, I don't have to hedge. I'm just looking to stack more on the way down if possible. I hate I can't buy dips. <laughs> oh, so then that, that's cool. Like, I mean, does it mean though, <laughs> BAP, what, what, you know, if you're, if you're earning an income though, like, you know, I guess you have a salary. I'm hoping you do, but maybe the point is like, if you're that long, um, I have an expression and I'm not telling you this, but I've done it for 30 years. I do trade my core holdings. So I have a core holding in Bitcoin, but does that mean that my weighting doesn't go up and down by, you know, four or 5% at any given time? Yeah, I trade it, but I'm a professional trader, okay? If you're not good at trading, and most of the world isn't, then you just lock into a, an exposure and you keep adding to it on a, a dollar cost averaging basis and whatnot. Again, I'm, I've done this professionally for 30 years, so I sort of get a feel for when I can add risk and subtract risk and take advantage of some of the markets. But that requires you sitting in a chair and looking at signals from all over different angles that many people don't. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there's no hard and fast rule on that side for me. Uh, uh, this is Dylan Leclerc. Sell covered call options for a small portion of your stack if you want to hedge. Like, look, that's all good, but that could be overthinking it as well. The fucking option market rapes you silly, okay? You know, when you sell vol, which is what you've done when you've when you've sold an option, the guy that makes all the money is the guy that delta hedges that position for you. And delta hedging in volatility just means they go out and they short the the underlying uh, as their hedge, and they they play what's called that uh, delta gamma trade. Uh, I, I know it's kindergarten, and I'm I'm bringing in these Greek letters. That don't overthink this, guys. Don't get too smart by a half. Uh, yeah, you can do covered calls, but that's an institutional strategy. I love Dylan, man. The guy is wicked smart. I don't even fucking do options on Bitcoin. And not I'm saying I'm smarter than him, but I just don't even waste my time with it. You know, I, I just, again, if I want to do those fancy things, I do it in other less expensive markets and on less expensive platforms to do it. Time is your hedge. I agree with that. Let's Dylan go. finished 11th grade. Dylan definitely <laughs> did finish 11th grade, all right? Hedging is dumb. No, hedging is not dumb. Hedging is not dumb. You need to have strategies. You need to have a diversified portfolio, but don't turn that diversification into something I call diversification, okay? So if you guys are 100% on Bitcoin and you that, you're absolutely that committed to Bitcoin, okay, good on you. You don't need to hedge then. You've already told me you're 100% in. Why are we talking about hedges on something you're 100% in on? You can't suck and blow at the same time. Awesome, Greg. Um, you you brought up a good point. Uh, I forget which pod it was that you were on, but you said that no one should ever trade emotionally. And it got me thinking. And because and I saw this other tweet by you the other day, about how bitcoiners need to kind of chill out a little bit on twitter and and we don't need to reschool our own and so it, it got me thinking of this question do you at least in your opinion do you think that bitcoin maximalists are trading emotionally um i'm going to answer that question two ways because this is quite important to me at this point in time so i'll say that no bitcoin maxis are some of the smartest most convicted people i've ever met um, I don't think they need to, conv uh, to trade on emotion because these guys, they got it figured out and they're so confident in shit that they call out other people and, you know, make the other people feel like, a, you know, toadstools. That's all good. <laughs> but at the, at the end of the day, like, you know, I won't tell them whether they get too emotional. Um, you you always need to remove emotion from a trade because that's when you make your worst trades, right? Is is when you bring emotion in. But um, so so <laughs> you can't suck and blow at the same time. Thank you. Um, so you guys are pretty fast at making these things up. That's uh, that's that's amazing. So so where is going with this though? And Jim was involved in this, and this is a bit of a sensitive topic for me. And Bitcoin Twitter called me out, um, and I'm cool with that. I was talking to a young man who I can only tell you, I know he's real. And I know he's real for various reasons that I can't share, except to say that this guy has a huge heart and he cares deeply about the safety of the nation and he does work in the military. 
And you wouldn't believe the number of people that were calling me out as this guy's a spook, you're getting played, you're a moron Foss, is this, you know, you just fell off the turnip truck. Like, I'm just like, well, you fucking guys fuck off. Okay, look, I have been in markets for 30 fucking years. Don't some 25-year-old peckerhead come and tell me about when I call out someone for being real or not, okay? I don't take that emotionally. I'm telling you, I can trust who I want. And this guy is the real deal. He's successfully gone off Twitter. We've driven him back into, into his little area of comfort. But it was emotional for me because I honestly believe that he was misconstrued. And if you guys don't know who I'm talking about, I'm talking about that guy, Jason Lowry, from the U.S. Space Force. And this guy was being accused of calling Bitcoin violent. And that was just the wrong use of semantics. And Jim properly called him out on that. Don't forget, this guy's a cadet. He's been trained to think violence his whole life. And perhaps he used words that offended some people. But at the end of the day, can you imagine having somebody inside the military that actually didn't want to have the next world war? I think that's pretty valuable. And I was at Bretton Woods last week and I was absolutely shocked that the first half of the first day was spent almost entirely examining the fact that we are going to go to war with China in the next five years. Like as a Canadian, that just doesn't resonate with me as much as it would with an American. But it was scary. And I don't think the world wants to go to war. Really, when we think about that, does the world actually want to go to war or could we solve these in a more peaceful manner? And Bitcoin, I think, is that solution. And the Chinese have just handed us this thing. They've handed Bitcoin miners to North America on a platter. And we're too stupid to take that opportunity. So all I would say is this. Um, Bitcoin maxis are an unbelievably powerful force. And yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy theorists out there. And you know what? I st perhaps I'm still wrong. But I'll tell you, I'm supposed to, well, I won't tell you anymore. I will just say that I believe this young man who seeked me out on LinkedIn, and then I somewhat encouraged him to come over to Twitter. Uh, man, was he roasted, eh? And, uh, and I feel bad about that. And he's a big boy, and he, he, you know, defended his turf and then realized, okay, I'm fighting against a, a human army that's way big, bigger than me. But again, there, there are so many places that we don't need to school our own. There's so many big, bigger fish to fry. I can think of Steve Hankey. Like, why does that guy still have a job at Johns Hopkins? Why don't people camp out on John Hopkins' front lawn and say, the value of your degree from John Hopkins is going down by the day because you have a stupid, retarded professor there that teaches bullshit, right? That's who we need to fight against. Not people that are trying to row in the same direction as, as, as we are. And, and so that's who I have problems with. And, uh, and again, that's when I said reschooling. I'm not trying to, I'm not going to teach anybody anything on Twitter. I promise you that. What I do have is 32 years of trading risk and knowing and trusting counterparties. Do you know if I've, if I've traded 100,000 trades in my life, I've only met my counterparty on maybe 5,000 of them? The other 95,000 trades, I've never met the person and you need to trust these people. So you get something in your, you get something in your stomach. You know, you can, you want to trade with someone. You need to be, have a very good human filter 
And I believe I was onto something with this guy. And maybe I'm wrong. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna cry about it or anything. I'm just gonna say we can use those sorts of strengths in uh, strategic locations to enhance the uh, appeal of Bitcoin to everybody in the world, including which is just about everybody who wants the nonviolent confrontation, right? We want to win this confrontation with China, but we don't want to have do it with nuclear weapons. And I think that was the message that he was trying to promote. So I've spent a lot of time on this because it was near and dear. But Jim, Jim was the diplomat. He called him out, correctly so. And I think he responded to both of us, Jim. He said, look, you know, he was wrong. He, he felt he was wrong. I understand. This is valuable for him. He was a bull in a china shop. He was a young kid, but he's got a big brain. And he's got a big heart. That's even more important. So I never thought he was a spook. Um, but I, I just think he's, uh, he, I told him to go back to LinkedIn and got blocked. Hello. You know, he's young and, and, and I don't even know what a spook means, but, but let, let's, uh, can just we an insider for the government. Right. People I, are I calling just, him out. Like he works for the government. So he's insider. He's trying to infiltrate the Bitcoin yeah. ecosystem and whatever, whatever. Um, I never saw it that way. I just, he's trained militarily. He's trained to yeah. think like a status and a military. So guy, listen, so. I, I'm supposed to meet him in the next two weeks. If I'm, if I'm allowed to return from the United States for various other reasons, back to Canada, I'll post whether, uh, whether he's a spook. Uh, and I say that tongue in cheek because all I know is I believe he's bigger than, than he's a, I think he's a better person than a lot of people were worried about him. But how about this? I love the, you know, shields up. Yeah, that's the best way. Shields up and, and, and filter, filter this stuff. I'm not saying he, he did it the right way. He just did it like a 24-year-old kid. I, I, like, you know, it's he, the kids that make me have confidence in the world are kids like Dylan LeClaire, kids like Jack Mahlers. And honestly, this kid, I thought he was something special. Doesn't mean that Bitcoin won't succeed without him. 100%, that's not the case. But... The reality is it could be a very valuable ally uh, within a, a Department of Defense that, uh, by and large, they want to push the button rather than mine Bitcoin. They want to get that other aircraft carrier rather than investing that same amount of money in Bitcoin mining uh, domestically that could change, you know, could really change the world. So, Awesome. Uh, Greg, we got people in here saying, I love Foss. He's one of us. Uh, and he means he means a pleb, and I know you are self self claimed plebe like us. So this question comes from Weinickis, and and he wants to know why do you think the pleb movement is so important? So sorry, I just was reading Dylan Leclaire's uh, comment here. Greg always insulting Jack Mahler's like that. I hope that's not what I did, right? I hope I didn't just insult jack maulers but if i, I think, did i'm I think taking he, all I think that he back. might mean uh greg's age but okay well greg's age <laughs> is uh he, he's a special guy and i love him too i met him down in miami but so so your question again was what why is it why is the pleb yeah yeah why like how come you like to consider yourself a pleb and and you hang out with I am, with right? the pleb? So look, yeah look. exactly I, but I am right. Look, I'm 58 years old. You guys, I under I graduated 1986 from engineering without ever using a personal computer. And you're gonna go, wow, he couldn't have been that good an engineer. And I'm gonna say, fuck you, I wasn't. There were no such things as a personal computer when I graduated. And now there's more power in an iPhone 
and put two men on the moon in 1967 when I was still alive. Okay? Like, you don't understand. When I have a problem with my iPhone, I go to my kids. Right? That's just natural. The other day, there was this guy that complimented one of my, uh, one of my tweets. And I just responded, thank you. And one of my sons goes, dad, you're so fucking stupid. It was Dilla Dago or that Australian basketball kid. I had no idea who he was. And then I said, wow, that's awesome that an Aussie basketball player for the Cleveland Cavaliers is, uh, is uh, complimenting uh, my Stephen Lavera podcast. So I had to go back and say, geez, I'm just that stupid. Like, so I don't know how Twitter works. I can't even figure out Telegram. All of these Telegram messages are coming around. I don't know how to use the stupid at sign and all this other shit. And so, so what am I? Yes, 100% I'm a pleb. Because Twitter is beautiful. It's friggin' beautiful, but it also is not natural for someone like me, right? And this is what you, so am I a pleb? Yeah. Will I always be a pleb? 100%. Because you guys are way smarter at this than I am. And, and, and you know, you, you need to always put yourself in someone else's shoes. And then I would try and say, well, what would my, what would my dad be doing on Twitter? My dad never had a fucking credit card in his life. Do you think he'd get on Twitter? Like all of this stuff is so new. And so I, yeah, I'll be a pleb. Why? Because I'm 58 years old. You guys are way better at this than I am. Because you've done it for 15 years already. And I've just done it for two. You know? And so you'll always be better. And does it mean that I don't have different angles on analyzing things or whatever? Yeah. But that doesn't mean that, you know, you guys discovered this. You, you guys made this revolution. I'm not going to change that. I can add to it and try and add value in various ways, but 100%, I'll always be like one of one of us, right? Uh, there's the thing, one of us, one of us. When I first, uh, when I first, uh, uh, so I was giving a finance class, believe it or not, to uh, to uh, th uh, my daughter and three of her friends during the summer. They said, Dad. Or my daughter said, Dad, can you teach us a little bit about finance? So one day, okay, I'm, I'm actually giving this finance, you know, I had charts up on a screen on, uh, it was a, connected to my iPad, and we had it on our Apple TV, and I was, uh, I was uh, giving the, char the uh, uh, lesson, and then all of a sudden I got sidetracked because Peter Schiff, for the first time ever, ever, responded to one of my trolls. And I got all lost in, in this and I had bounced back to my iPad and I was all involved in Twitter. And I didn't realize the screen had switched off of what I was trying to teach them and onto my Twitter iPad. And they saw all these things going on and off. And then someone threw that uh, one of us, one of us uh, uh, memes and the girls went crazy. They loved it, right? And uh, from that day, I'll never forget. Like, of course I'm a pleb, right from that day where I felt like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm part of the, it made the girls laugh, these 20 year old girls, which I was that I was trying to try and teach finance to, or some stock charts and all this stuff. It was so cool. And what I had done is I had sent Peter Schiff's son some Bitcoin uh, for his birthday. And he, he said, well, my son's only 18 years old. He's an idiot. What's your excuse? And that was the response. And so that was a big day for me, right? Like I didn't realize if I was getting, if he was a robot or whatever, if I was sending money to Schiff's son, uh, 
it was a bot and then Peter Schiff came right back at me that day and I'm like okay I think I might have made it in this little you know in this little community and that uh, one of us so that's near and dear to my heart and uh, so is that a pleb mistake yeah 100% but that's what plebs do right let's go one of us uh Wynikis sent me a dm and you kind of got into it and he he wants to know who's your favorite personality to dunk on but before you answer that um <laughs> I have a quick question. Do you think that the shifts are theater art, Twitter theater art? Because that's the yeah, vibe that good I get. At it, right? Yeah, no, hundred percent. Look, um, I get. I is so for his clients. Peter Schiff has been one heck of a horrible risk manager. Because to get that close to a trade that has up until now even returned, you know, hundreds of times over when he could have gotten involved in it at ten bucks. Right, I think that was around the time that he started dunking on uh, on Bitcoiners because it was a challenge to his gold uh, business. You need to play probabilities in risk management, and if Shifty has been a hundred percent certain that Bitcoin is worth zero since ten dollars, and he hasn't reversed his position just because he's so uh, uh, you know conflicted or stubborn. I actually have seen guys on a trading floor get carried off on a gurney because they've had heart attacks. Literally having a heart attack right in front of me. And that's what the pressure of markets does to people who really manage money or really manage trades. Somehow Schiff has been able to charge his clients exorbitant fees to produce very low returns and has successfully allowed them to miss out on the best trade of their entire lives by calling Bitcoin some sort of Ponzi and he's still in business. So then he gets his son on board and says, okay, son, you go out there and you be the anti Peter and you become a Bitcoiner. Yeah. It's a little theater. Um, is it smart? I guess so. Honest to God though, if I was one of Schiff's clients and I saw this, I, I might, you know, really get upset. So, uh, he's a poor risk manager. He may have even lower ethical values. Uh, that's fine. So like us, Peter Schiff is is your favorite person to dunk on. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I, Steve Hankey really is is quite a, a disgrace, in my opinion. You know, calling he wants El Salvador to fail. Like you actually are calling out. You want the you actually want a system to fail so that these poor people that there's two million unbanked citizens in El Salvador and you want to continue it that way. I mean, that's absolutely shameful to call out that. And, and that's just imperialistic, absolute, you know, I'll border on saying criminal type of thinking. And again, endowed chair at a very fine institution. I can't wait, you know, for Johns Hopkins uh, lacrosse team to finally get a sticker on their back that says fire fucking hanky. Wouldn't that be great if the John Hopkins lacrosse team was sponsored by some guy in Canada that said fire hanky? Maybe I'll try and do that. Maybe if I ever make a lot of money in Bitcoin, I'm going to sponsor the John Hopkins lacrosse team with a fire hanky uh, thing on it, right? He's just a disgraceful old fuck. And I've called him out time and again. He doesn't even have the balls to block me on Twitter. Let's go. I, I'd throw a few sets on that as well. That that would be epic. Um, we'll, we'll do a few more questions. So we're respectful sure. of your time. 
Uh, I know. Oh, no, Jester. I have all the time. I have all the time. I have all okay, the time cool. for you guys. I love um, this. I know Jester wanted to know this question. So, what are your thoughts on a Bitcoin ETF? I'm guessing an American one because I know you're involved with Canadian ones. So, I was. I was. I, I, I've, I've removed my investment from that company. I cashed out. Um, I, I think it's valuable. Why do I think it's valuable? Um, look, you guys will always argue not your keys, not your, um, not your Bitcoin. Uh, but the reality is most of the money in the world still live, lives in brokerage accounts. And people like to see all their money in one place so that they can understand what the weighting is, so that they know what their tax base is, so that there's just so many benefits of having all of your security or asset exposure, liquid, excuse me, asset exposure all in one spot. If you want to call it a Charles Schwab account, you know, uh, TD Ameritrade uh, uh, trades at a premium or a discount based on the supply and demand in the market. So you got to look at that. Um, and you can't, uh, you can't, you know, you don't want to buy it. It will never go back to a premium again. But at one point, it was an 85% premium over its net asset value, right? Someone was paying 85% more to own Bitcoin or to have exposure to Bitcoin using an extreme, a, a, a fund that traded on the pink sheets in the U.S. And all the hedgies ran in and they, they arbed themselves out of that trade and got too fancy and now it trades at a 10% discount. But that's the same thing as saying, hey, someone's willing to give me $100 of Bitcoin for 90 bucks. Well, maybe then you should look at using GBTC. That wouldn't in Canada, we cannot put GBTC in tax-advantaged accounts. I don't know if you guys can do it in the U.S. I'd be surprised because it trades on the on the pinks, but uh, who knows? So Hanky was involved in Argentina's convertibility. Yeah, exactly. It led to the collapse of the economy. But you know what? He was sitting in a uh, he was sitting in a uh, endowed chair. So whoever endows endows that chair should be outright embarrassed. So Dylan says GBTC will eventually be an ETF. I think that's true, but it's not going to happen overnight. And, um, you know, is a futures-based ETF the best way to go like Novogratz is promoting? No. When the futures curve is in contango, if you go three months out and purchase three months forwards, and it rolls down the curve, you're losing money. The only time a futures market works for an ETF is when it's in normal backwardation, like the oil market tends to be. Not always, but it's when the short contract trades at a higher price than the long contract. So think of your if, if your contract rolls down the curve, as it gets closer to the one-month contract, the value of your contract actually goes up on a mark-to-market -market basis, not down. So I don't think a Bitcoin futures ETF has a lot of advantages over GBTC. Uh, because both of them will trade, you know, it'll cost you about 10% a year just to have exposure in a Bitcoin futures ETF. Yeah, there's Dylan. Dylan, why don't you just run this show, man? Futures based bleeds money. <laughs> exactly right. Awesome. Uh, okay. What's well, the best BTC ETF in Canada? I like the purpose one. It's called BTCC. So it's it's not the lowest fee, but it's the biggest uh, liquidity. So BTCC is the purpose Bitcoin ETF. 
that's for uh, Bitcoin already won the question for TFSA. I lose you guys. No, we're still here. Um, Let's see. Is Canada as cold as as Canada as cold as they say? (laughs) Is Canada as cold as they say? Here's a cool question. Did you know that in Toronto, uh, I am actually further south than the entire state of North Dakota. So there's places in Canada that are definitely cold, but there's places in the U.S. that are definitely colder than some spots in Canada. So if you go to Fargo, North Dakota, I promise you it's colder than Toronto, Canada. And you can bank on that. But then if you go to, you know, Montreal, that's one of the coldest places you'll go on a, on a long-term basis in a big city anywhere in the world. So yeah, Canada has its moments, but uh, you know, it's a big country. There's different, uh, different spots. So this is why you're an expert in melting ice cubes. Uh, that's true too. Um, did you remember that guy that always used to go on CNBC? Um, gosh, he was a great guy. Art something, Art Cashin. You guys remember Art Cashin? He goes, he was an expert in melting ice cubes because he put them in his drinks starting on Friday evening and he drank all the way through the weekend. And that's what he called it. He calls, I'm going to, I'm going to melt some ice cubes this weekend. So I guess I could be a melting ice cube expert from the, from the rye as well. But uh, no, uh, Canada's got a lot of cool shit going on, but we're in big, we're in big trouble. I need to say this uh, outright. Um, I do not want the U.S. to fail. I do not want Canada to fail. Canada will fail before the U.S. fails. Uh, It's not nearly as big. Our credit default swap is uh, indicative of a much higher probability of default than uh, the United States. I don't want either country to fail. I want some sort of parallel system to develop where we have Bitcoin that we use as our uh, savings account and some sort of uh, uh, reserve currency that we use as our checking account, okay? Um, All these guys that want the world to end, I think you gotta be real careful about what you wish for because if you're right, uh, there's going to be a whole shitload of ugliness out in the world. And uh, my optimism is that Bitcoin can solve a lot of stuff in conjunction with helping the U.S. maintain its global uh, uh, dominance in things like freedom. In, and, and you guys will say, wow, you've fallen so far. Look, there's definitely been a lot of steps back, but the U.S. is still the greatest country in the world. Um, you know, you got the strongest military, you have the brightest people, you have the most, you have the best constitutional laws, even though, you know, it was a bit of a shit show, this whole Senate thing with this, uh, with this uh, infrastructure bill, I viewed it as very positive for, for Bitcoin, uh, or for the crypto industry, digital asset industry as a whole, just the process of how it worked, there's still governance that, uh, that works in the U.S. It does appear like it's uh, pretty sickening at times when you get the all the lobbyists and, uh, you know, uh, Shelby uh, uh, doesn't sign off the bill at, in the 11th hour. I mean, that's disgraceful stuff. But at the end of the day, the process still generally works. And it's better than any other country in the world. Right? So it's not perfect, but it's the best thing that we have to defend everything that's good in the world. And if we brought Bitcoin mining to North America in a big way, and that's the Chinese that have given us this opportunity to do that. I'm like, God damn it, if we don't get this thing done, we are a bunch of really, really stupid, stupid risk managers. And 
on that basis, I'll tell you that what you know, Senator Loomis and 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 the other politicians are doing that are working this. I just hope soon that we will be able to announce a Canadian, uh, you know, that's uh, that's going to come out on that side of the uh, aisle. When I say side of the aisle, I mean you know, defending the uh, the viability of uh, the sound money. Um, that'll be a good thing. Awesome. All right, we got a few questions in the Discord. One's by Cody. He says, CBDCs trialed in Canada before the Fed tries to roll it out? Question mark. Wow. Uh, un uncertain. All I will say about CBDCs is that they're nothing more than digital fiat with surveillance, right? So uh, I hope they don't bring it into Canada. Um, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm not a fan of this surveil surveillance. Uh, I'm not a fan of... Uh, a expiry date on a currency, uh, if in fact used before or a best before date, all that's possible with a digital currency. Uh, the worst thing about a digital currency, um, besides the surveillance and everything like, like that is though, uh, well, how about this? I'll start with the best thing. I think a digital currency can actually enhance the, uh, the attractiveness of other digital assets. As you know, I'm very focused on Bitcoin. Um, I think Bitcoin will be the only blockchain that is needed, uh, a true blockchain, because uh, most other blockchains can be done much more efficiently or other databases can be done much more efficiently than using the blockchains. Uh, the only reason we need Bitcoin is because it's truly decentralized. Uh, and then, you know, I'll say this and I'm going to get a lot of hate mail, but fuck off anyway. Um, Ethereum is a test net for Bitcoin layer three. Okay. So the things that succeed on Ethereum, uh, they'll just move to the better blockchain and that's Bitcoin. And if you want to send me hate mail, that's fine. I'm no coder. I'm just, that's my belief that there's a lot of shit coins out there that will fail, but there will be some that succeed. And those ones that succeed that truly need a decentralized blockchain, They'll gravitate or they'll migrate to the uh, layer three Bitcoin. Um, you know what? I don't want to get a whole lot of hate mail from meth heads and uh, that's fine. Um, but uh, at the end of the day, there's too many centralized blockchains out there. And in other words, you can do the centralization of a database a lot more efficiently than using blockchain technology. Everyone knows that, but they try and add blockchain.com to their name so that they uh, get a lift in their stock price. Um, so, <laughs> so I guess, um, where was I going with this? The question was central bank digital currency. So that's the good thing. They will enhance the, uh, adoption of, uh, other digital assets, ultimately Bitcoin, in my opinion, you know, the bad things I mentioned, look, the, uh, the, the, um, surveillance, the best before dates, the scariest thing that's possible is the circumvention of the uh, uh, money supply and the control of the money supply through the central bank uh, via the commercial banks and the necessity of making loans to uh, expand the money supply or to increase the velocity of money. And, um, you know, there is some ways of uh, circumventing that using digital, uh, central bank digital currencies, i.e. just populating the accounts of uh, the citizens directly, uh, you know, uh, deposits directly from the central bank into the into the uh, bank accounts of the uh, of the citizenry, um, then we could really lose control. 
of our monetary system. I don't think a lot of people have thought this through very carefully. And as Henry Ford said over 100 years ago, he said if the common American understood how the true banking system worked, there'd be a revolution in the morning. Um, I don't want there to be a revolution in the morning, but the banking system is as flawed today as it was 100 years ago. So, you know, it's a reality. Capitalism is built on credit. Central bank digital currencies will be a new tool. We'll probably fuck that up. And that concerns me, but then I'll ask your audience, what's the hedge to that? And we all know what the hedge to that is, right? The best store of value man has ever created, backed by math and code, and it's decentralized. That's the key. Let's go. Uh, Labra asked you, what's your favorite Bitcoin meme? Um, 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 I mean, Greg, you know, fuck you, Greg does a great, <laughs> a lot of great memes, memes, right? I love the guy. Um, you know what one was really good was the one with Paul Revere riding in uh, on the on a horse. Yeah. Did you guys see that one? Yeah. And he's with got fire in his eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah fire in his eyes. I, I guess I really like that one. Um, I like the, uh, I, I'll tell you what I really like is the ability. So I'm not sure if you guys uh, would call this a meme or whatever, but it's definitely uh, uh, very um, creative. Uh, did you see the one they made of me in a, in a rap song? And I'm, I'm saying so. it's only it's only mathematics, mathematics. <laughs> anyway, this was fucking amazing. All right, and whoever did it, uh, I, I was so proud that I actually had a rap video because they did it with a little tune in the back and Peter McCormick and yeah, Pleb Music, thank you. Uh, Pleb Music made this thing and it was unbelievable. And uh, my kids actually think I'm a little cooler than uh, than I actually am because of that video. So uh, I'll, I'll thank you guys for that. <laughs> awesome. Um, I can relate. <laughs> few can relate, Jim. Um, guys, we're we're <laughs> we're uh, since. All right, all right, Wynikus. We need to get you one with the soundboard. Uh, guys, since we went long tonight, we're just going to let it roll. We got Foss here for a little bit, so don't be shy. Ask your questions. But uh, I do have uh, one more, or actually maybe a few more questions. But, Greg, um, what are people in your circle talking about? Like uh, maybe credit traders that you know, or yeah, yeah. maybe just you know the, the average person oh, yeah. that you get. In no, it's it's, with. it's it, guys. It's 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 a tidal wave. All right, I just cannot tell you. The biggest news that I ever saw was uh, Golden Tree, uh, who I think is one of the best credit managers in the world. That's um, Steve Tannenbaum, who I've actually met in person. This was before the year two thousand. Met him in New York. He wasn't even working for Golden Tree. He was an analyst, I think, at New York Life, if I'm not mistaken. But Golden Tree, a $45 billion credit fund, announced an allocation to uh, uh, to Bitcoin. Uh, Ray Dalio going out there and saying he'd rather own Bitcoin than a bond. I mean, it's pure mathematics. The thing about bonds that, that appeals so much, perhaps, or why Bitcoin would appeal so much to credit managers, because a bond is only mathematics. There's no subjectivity to it. The coupon doesn't change. The price of the bond will change as a function of what you need as your IRR on the bond relative to the coupons. But the coupon and the principal are a contract, right? When you buy a bond, 
you are entering into a contract with the counterparty for them to pay you a contractual return. It's not like you're investing in a stock where you have, well, if the cash flows of the stock of the of that company go higher, you're hoping that the value of the stock goes higher and the potential of dividends goes higher. But that's all non-contractual. Bonds are contractual. There's not a lot of guessing or much less guessing that goes into pricing bonds. So that's why I view mathematics in bonds and then the mathematics in Bitcoin as being... Uh, uh, you know, the mathematics of Bitcoin is being very similar because that's what appeals to me so much about Bitcoin, the fixed supply, the certainty, the math and code, you know, math is the base, base layer of language, right? And when I say that, I need you guys to understand how important that is. I mean, mathematics, whether you're Chinese, Spanish, French, English, that's your second layer language. Your first layer is math. Everybody understands math regardless of what their mother tongue is, or not everyone understands it, but they have the ability to understand it, right? Most people don't, including our fucking asshole prime minister. But at the end of the day, um, you know, math is math, the base layer of language, and math is bonds, and math is Bitcoin. And so the credit funds are going to get involved. It's just a question of whether the, the bank, excuse me, the countries leapfrog hedge funds. I mean, we cannot underestimate the importance of El Salvador. El Salvador is just one of another of a other 150 countries that would benefit by having a Bitcoin standard. So the race is on. Ooh. That's uh, bullish, guys. Extremely bullish. Um, and again, you know, it, lower your time preference. Don't. You know, I'll give you my prediction of, of, of the bond, excuse me, the, the price of Bitcoin over 2 million bucks. I'm not giving you a target or a time on that. But I will say with confidence that it'll be within my lifetime. And if it's not, it'll be within my kid's lifetime for certain. And, and that's why, you know, you sort of got to look at this thing as a, as a uh, guys that hodl. I mean, that's a great uh, adage for a savings account. You know, it's where you're storing your value of your time and energy. So whether it goes from 40,000 to 50,000 to 80,000 to the intrinsic value that I see is 150,000 today, it's still a rounding error in the context of where it's going to be in 20 or 30 years, which is where we should be planning. Because ultimately, I'm going to transfer this wealth or this value, this store of energy to my kids. So why, you know, why so bearish? Um, look, it's got to go through 2 million before it gets to 10 million. How about that? Okay, guys? Like, so, so, so let's, let's talk in a certain amount of time. But all I will say is don't overthink it down in these price ranges. Right? You mean if 2 someone... million? Do you mean 2 million per sat? No, mine's <laughs> 2 million per coin. But, uh, but if someone's getting to 2 million per sat, that's, I'm, I'm going to have to call that one out. I mean, I, or else, I mean, can you imagine what, 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 what the fiat currencies have done then? But uh, I suppose it's possible. Nothing's impossible. But no, I'm at 2 million per coin. And very simply, the way I get there, I need to run through this math because this is key. I always look at things from a macro basis. Total global financial assets, including real estate, is 900 trillion U.S. dollars. 900 trillion U.S. dollars. 
about 400 trillion in real estate, 400 trillion in debt and uh, currencies, a uh, couple of hundred trillion in, in equities. You get to you get to 900 trillion dollars. Gold is what 10 trillion. Gold's like a little bit piece of rounding error. And then Bitcoin's at one trillion, right? And then you need to understand that. Uh, I firmly believe that someday Bitcoin will, uh, that energy will be priced in Bitcoin. And uh, why is that? Well, very simply because Bitcoin is digital energy. And if you're Vlad Putin sitting there getting paid in US dollars for your valuable natural resources, don't you think he might be saying, well, why would I get paid in fiat bullshit when I could get paid in digital energy? So natural resource energy for digital energy, which is Bitcoin. When that happens, Bitcoin will have a chance of being the world reserve asset. Uh, it will replace U.S. Treasuries. But let's get in, not get in too granular on that basis. There will also be a, a world reserve currency. Will it be layer two Bitcoin or will it be some other central bank digital currency? Let's hope it's still the U.S. dollar just to keep the uh, world peace to the extent that, uh, you know, that's the best alternative. Um, but anyway, if Bitcoin becomes uh, a global reserve asset, don't you think it's crazy that uh, maybe 5% of total global assets would be in Bitcoin? So what's 5% of 900 trillion? That's 45 trillion bucks. And then 45 trillion bucks divided by the 21 million supply. That's how I get to over 2 million bucks of Bitcoin. But that's if it's only 5%. And why so bearish? Well, okay, you're right. So do 10%. Well, then it's over 4 million bucks of Bitcoin. If you do 20% of global financial assets, well, you know, you're getting into some real money <laughs> for Bitcoin, right? But you got to go through 2 million before you get to 8 million. And, uh, you know, then you got to look at it from a probability adjusted basis and say, what's, what is the market pricing the probability that Bitcoin attains my $2 million valuation today. And you back that out and you say, it is saying that there's a 98% chance it goes to zero and a 2% chance it goes to 2 million bucks. Right? How does that work? Well, 98% times zero is zero and 2% times 2 million bucks is 40,000 right around where it's trading today. So maybe it's at two and a half percent. That's the equivalent of saying, my odds of buying it today, if I think there's a greater than 2% chance that it goes to 2 million bucks, I buy with my eyes closed. And I think it's way higher than 2%, right? And that's how people need to approach these trades on a probability adjusted basis. Anyone who's 100% certain that something's going to happen in a financial market is fooling themselves. Nobody can ever be 100% certain. There actually is one thing I'm 100% certain of, and that's that fiat currencies will continue to debase. Other than that, you got to play the probabilities. So I would just say that, you know, poor Peter Schiff, like, you know, he's just so stubborn and so stupid and he had the chance to buy it at 10 and then he didn't buy it at 20 and now he's not buying it at 40 because he didn't buy it at 10 and it's going to go from 40 to 2 million and he's still not going to own any except his son will own it but like that's just a horrible risk manager when information changes you need to change your position or you get carried off the floor
Don't be stubborn like Schiff. As the information changes, change your trading position. Awesome. Um, okay, I got a few questions on our Twitter, and then we'll uh, we'll wrap it up after those ones. Okay. Um, okay. Go ahead. Let me see. One of them was ask Greg about the ever grand bond sell off and its impact okay, on the broader yeah, credit yeah. markets. So that's I referred to it a little bit earlier. So that's the big uh, that's about a 10% issuer, meaning it it controls 10% of the high yield market in China. So that's Evergrande is a big real estate develop developer who's uh, fallen on hard times. <clears throat> they don't view the assets as being uh, uh, valued uh, versus the liabilities, which are the bonds. So they're worried about impairment. The problem is getting a, a, a signal from that market is not a true market because the high yield market in China does not have the distressed market below it to, uh, to absorb any selling coming out of the high yield market. All the distressed buyers in the world generally live in the US. I saw it firsthand as a Canadian high yield bond trader. Guys that were always the most disciplined buyers when things got ugly and got distressed, they all live south of the border. They just, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> they have a much better uh, risk tolerance. It's a much more developed market in the U.S. And uh, China is suffering the same thing right now. So everybody's a seller of these bonds. Uh, but the 60-40 rule applies. There's an old trading adage that bonds never stay in the 60s long. They either go from 60 back to 70 or they go from 60 down to 40. And that's sort of where Evergrande is settling out right now is into in the 40s, which indicates severe impairment and high likelihood of default. The contagion from that, though, uh, is probably more likely than not, in my opinion, to get be contained. Uh, it's certainly something to watch, though, uh, because part of the people are just holding their breath, hoping that the Chinese government steps in in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think that's not necessarily going to happen. But what I do think is uh, it's still an undeveloped sort of bit of a uh, off the beaten path market. It's not a type of market that will bleed into other markets, in my opinion. I could be wrong. But I don't think it's nearly as concerning as, let's say, when you see uh, gurgling in the, in, the, in the domestic credit markets and in the banking system. So, yeah, it's something to watch. But... Evergrande, the real, the real reason that it's fallen so far is because there's not a natural uh, distressed buyer group. And also it represents 10% of the market. So it's the, probably the largest high yield issuer out there. Uh, once your largest issuer gets into trouble, um, you know, the rest of the market gets very, very sick. It's just in the high yield market in China. Okay. Uh, one more question over here trying to find them through all the trolls uh it was where'd it go dang i lost it uh, i was like what oh here it goes how does greg assess the afghani turmoil using the cds lens yeah so no answer there there's certainly no cds on afghan as I, as I see it, I mean, there would be a contagion within the other uh, Southeast Asian markets. Um, again, though, I think it was Dylan that pointed this out. Um, 
Afghanistan has a lower GDP than the state of Vermont, and that's not to dump on uh, Dylan's uh, beautiful state of Vermont, but uh, it really doesn't matter. Like, I mean, it matters. Like, I don't, I don't like to see all the horrible things that are happening to the population over there. But from an economic perspective in in, in the globe, I mean, really, I hate to say it, but, uh, you know, we, we, we should be more concerned what happens in uh, uh, some of the larger United States, the states like Ohio or something, than, than, than what happens in Afghanistan from an economic perspective. Again, I'm not trivializing trivializing the uh, the human suffering there, but it's not a big credit uh, event by any means. Awesome. And then this one's kind of a troll question, but I I don't know what it means, but it says, are okay. you still the gap daddy? Well, that's a good one, you know, so they named me that. So I said, uh, I predicted the gap would be, uh, well, I actually thought they were making fun of the gap in my teeth, to be, <laughs> but it turns out that they were making reference to a gap that I said, what happens, let's just play a, a game theory here, that major central bank comes out and announces a position in Bitcoin for their reserves. I said that the price of Bitcoin would gap up a couple of hundred thousand dollars on that news. And I think that's why they named me Gap Daddy. Uh, although if it's because of the gap in my, in my front teeth too, I'll, I'll, I'll chuckle about that. So yes, I'm still the Gap Daddy. I feel that it's, uh, I feel that it'll, it's still a, a potential outcome, a positive event risk. Awesome. Uh, we got another, another question in the Discord. This is by Cube. He says, Foss, do you think Michael Burry sees the same thing as you and that's why he's shorting TLT? He has also mentioned that he's not sure about Bitcoin because he's unaware of the type of leverage that's in there due to stable coins. Yeah, so uh, here's there's two things there. So no, I, I would not short TLT to, to uh, impose my credit view. My credit view is much easy, more easily uh, executed uh, in the CDS market, which Michael Burry has tremendous amount of experience in. He was actually purchasing protection or buying insurance on subprime mortgage bonds using credit default swaps. So he knows how to do it on countries. Uh, the TLT is an inflation play. I'm not an inflate. I'm more in the Jeff Booth camp. I think the deflation uh, due to technology is just as large a potential outcome as the inflationary forces in the, uh, in the market. Uh, so I don't see that, uh, but if Mr. Burry was concerned about, uh, credit risk of the United States or, you know, other G7 nations or G20 nations for that matter, he certainly would be wise enough, uh, to be able to execute that in the credit default swap market. His view on Bitcoin due to, uh, stable coins, I think that's a little fluffy. Um, I was at the Bitcoin conference with a tremendous, uh, Boston-based money manager who's so concerned about Tether. He doesn't, he's not into Bitcoin yet because he's concerned about Tether. But, you know, when you read between the lines, he hopes that Tether having problems will cause the Bitcoin price to crash. Uh, then he can get into Bitcoin when he likes to get into Bitcoin, which is at lower prices, right? Dylan, uh, once again, I'll call him out. I think I read something from him today that was a really cool tweet that said something like, well, if Tether is so uh, linked to the price of Bitcoin or vice versa, the price of Bitcoin is so linked to Tether, why did Tether increase in market capitalization during the last six months or the last period of time when Bitcoin was shredded? And I'll say, yeah, Dylan, good on you, dude. Like I, I don't, I think in the long run, a problem in the stable coins is actually extremely bullish for Bitcoin. Uh, 
There's a problem in the stable coins is exactly what you own Bitcoin for. If Tether has this over levered exposure to the commercial paper market, isn't that just like being like a bank? And I don't think they do, but let's just say they did. That's the banking system. Don't overthink this. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. That's exactly like, like, look, guys always get too smart by a half. And I think that Michael Burry may be too smart by a half. And if you guys want me to explain what that means, I will. But most people know what it means. Um, don't be too smart by a half. Don't overthink a trade. If something has the ability to go up tenfold or 20 or 30 fold from here, don't not get into it because it's $3,000 higher then you want to pay for it, right? Are you smart enough to tell me you know that Bitcoin should be trading at 45,000 versus 42,000 versus 48,000? Nobody's smart enough to tell you that. If you have a conviction to it, buy it with your eyes fucking closed, okay? Because it is the best asymmetric trade I've ever seen. Mr. Burry may be overthinking things. That being said, I'm sure I've been on the other sides of his trades where he's carved me, but there's times I know I was on the other side of his trades and I got better, the better of him. Not just him, but people who had opposite views. And that's what makes a market. Bulls, bears, and pigs. I have tremendous respect for what he's done. I just think his analysis of Bitcoin is different from the way I see it. Epic. Um, all right. Surfer Jim asks, why not Moon yet? <laughs> Who's selling? <laughs> um, it's a market, a trillion dollar market is no, or whatever it is, 800 million is nothing to scoff at. So there's always selling, uh, there's guys, you know, that are fancy. There's guys that have leverage. There's guys that have a, tr a pairs trade on. There's guys that have it against uh, shit coins. Right. Uh, it, I guess when you have a trillion dollars of asset value outstanding, you want a fluid market and to have a fluid market, you need sellers. And, you know, there'll be gaps up. Um, as the institutional guys get more involved, though, you'll see less volatility overall in the market. And um, that's a good thing. Um, doesn't mean that the number doesn't go up. It just means that gaps up or gaps down in prices that have, you know, that are initiated out of uh, Asia at 7 p.m. on a Sunday night won't be as severe or as market moving as uh, they have been in the past. So uh, why no moon yet? I think it's done pretty darn good since I've been involved and it's gone up tenfold each two years over its life. So if you think that uh, it's going to go <laughs> another tenfold in the next two years, uh, you know, I, I have a bet on with a Boston money manager that it hits a hundred thousand bucks a coin by Christmas. Uh, I took that bet more as a uh, uh, as an ability to get to go out for dinner with him. Uh, I don't really care whether it gets to that price or not. Either I'll pay for the dinner or he'll pay for it. The point is, uh, my time preference, I just don't care. I promise you that when I give this to my kids, if I'm still alive in 20 years, we're going to remember this, Jim. We'll go surfing in Montauk. How about this? We'll go surfing in uh, Costa Rica down with uh, John Vallis and uh, Francis Pouliot down at, uh, at, uh, in Costa Rica at, uh, uh, Tamarindo. Okay. In, in, in 20 years. And then we'll compare notes on, uh, on the price of Bitcoin. Uh, I don't care what it does between now and then. Cause in, well, I care, but I think I know where it's going to be there then the price. And I don't care how it gets there. 
it will get there. It's only mathematics. Let's go. Uh, we got one question by Bitcoin already won. Will there be a gap when the ETF is approved in the US? I'm going to go back to this other thing. Uh, Jim, Jim said, you said it's worth 150K already. That is true. That's my intrinsic value of it, Jim. The That's FOSS's intrinsic value. I don't make markets. I can't move trillion dollar markets. What if Fidelity came out with the same research? What if they took FOSS's research and put Fidelity on it? Or JP Morgan? Yeah, I think it might move the price of Bitcoin up. But some knucklehead FOSS who lives up in Canada... Uh, who, who's all over Twitter and has an issue with some stupid professor at John Hopkins, maybe I don't carry the weight that a JP Morgan has, right? So I guess uh, uh, that's my intrinsic value for it. It hasn't uh, caught on yet. It will over time. Um, but yeah, it's worth 150. But I also think it's worth way more than 150K right now. That's only the number I came up with uh, using the credit default swap markets. So, you know, sorry to cut that question off, but the key is like my valuation is my valuation. 100 trillion has, or plan B has his own valuation. Peter Schiff has a valuation. It happens to be zero. Like everyone has a valuation. It doesn't mean, you know, the market is the ultimate judge of, of that's why a market is, you know, is what it is. There's bulls, bears, and pigs. I'm a bull on Bitcoin, but I ain't moving the price of Bitcoin by myself. Let's go. Uh, we got a, a troll question for Marty's Owl. Foss, would you beat Burry in the octagon? <laughs> uh, would I beat? I don't know what he looks like. I've seen him played on a movie. I, I think I would if I look. The, the, uh, when I get passionate about somebody, or excuse me, about something, and when someone pisses me off, that 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 really I view as. Uh, uh, I'll tell you what, put hockey skates on him, and I'm pretty sure I can beat just about any other Bitcoiner in the world, unless he's an NHL player, all right? And there's a few that I know of that will pound me into a, into a pulp, okay? Because hockey players are the best fighters out there because they're doing it on two metal blades, that then, and then you fall on a piece of thing that's harder than a concrete, right? Uh, these guys that do it in an octagon, they're falling on a mat that's uh, it's not like like falling on, on, a, on a sheet of ice. So um, I, I think there's a lot of hockey players that can hold their own. Um, so, and I played a little hockey. But um, uh, put hockey skates on Burry. Yeah, yeah, I beat him. No question. <laughs> Let's go. Bullish. Bullish on Foss. Uh, another question. This is another troll. This is Bitcoin already won. He asks, what is a she session? <laughs> I don't know, but that's that's so lame, eh? <laughs> Isn't it like honest to God that okay? So so, I play probabilities. I've read Margaret Thatcher's book. That's Justin Trudeau's mom. Excuse me, not Margaret Thatcher's Margaret Trudeau, her book. Uh, and the question on she session, I think he's referring to something that our, you know, our prime minister said today on TV that's trying to appeal to something. I'm not really sure, but. Margaret Trudeau confesses that she fucked the Rolling Stones in the back of a limousine. Okay? If you read her book, she confesses to it. Okay? All right. So all I would say is she did so much acid when she was young that some of it could have gone through and impacted Mr. Trudeau's thinking. And sometimes I think that's what's happening when he brings up these types of, uh, uh, you know, comments, right?
<laughs> Let's go. Well, Greg, this has been awesome. This is uh gonna officially be uh at Foss Greg Foss takeover because we went for basically two hours, and man, this and I appreciate. This- you guys yeah. having me this is you know it was my pleasure sorry for the technical issues right but uh, uh no worries I, can i can i just tell you guys that i want to thank you guys and and the young guns that 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 are uh out there promoting the um the ability to look at that already a uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing um so out there promoting the ability for uh the future uh, to actually be uh, optimistic, and uh, you know, people say if they didn't have Bitcoin, uh, they wouldn't. You know, what 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 would they have? And I believe that, and I believe that there's room for so much positive uh, Bitcoin to impact the world, including reducing violent uh, interactions on the rink or whatever in 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 the war games. Um, this is a. Uh, this is an opportunity for us to make uh, lasting change uh, for all people in the uh, in the wealth spectrum, right? I mean, I'm privileged. I'm I'm a but I'm a spoiled soft boomer. I've made some money. I worked hard to make that money. But man, oh man, I'm part of a soft generation, and I don't view the uh, uh, printing of money and the punishing things it does for the less privileged in the world as being something that I want to be, uh, I, I don't want that to be my legacy. So keep up the fight. What the guys are doing in Guatemala, these kids in Guatemala that I'm, uh, uh, that are now boots on the ground in El Salvador. Uh, I was just on a Zoom conference call with them last Thursday. Uh, they made, uh, I was a keynote speaker at a, uh, at a golf, uh, it was a merchant a presentation to the local merchants at a golf club. Jeff Booth popped his head in for under, you know, five minutes or so. These are the types of people that are changing the world and they're making the world better for people that are less privileged than me. Okay. And, uh, I'm a capitalist with a heart. Like I love capitalism but I also know that you need to take care of the people at the other end or your empire will fail, right? The, the, the Roman empire failed because of the elites versus the common person. Don't let that happen in the United States. The best way for that not to happen is to adopt a sound money policy based on Bitcoin. Our kids' futures de- depend on this, man. And I have three of them probably all of whom are, you know, within the ages of the people on this call. And, and that is serious to me because uh, if you don't, you know, if you, if you don't leave a great future to your kids, what have you done? You've just stolen from them. And I don't want to be remembered for that. So thanks for helping me uh, try and accomplish that. And then on a little bit of a sad note, um, I put my dog down today. So Oh, bummer. Yeah, yeah. So it's been a, it's been a long day for Foster. But um, I was really happy to uh, to be part of this. So uh, you cheered me up, guys. Oh, awesome, Greg. Uh, I just recently... There you go. Get a wine again. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank uh, you, boys. Greg, yeah, Thank you, I, I, know, I know how you feel. I recently just went through that, and, and it's a bummer, bro. But uh, it gets better. And uh, I just want to thank you for coming out because this is yeah. epic. We we started really technical and then we got into Pleb Foss, which is all our favorite Foss. So 
<laughs> I want to thank you again. Well, I, 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 if I get into trouble, it's only because I'm trying to tell the truth. And uh, one of my trading buddies uh, made up a shirt for me once. And it said, I yell because I care. And uh, you know what? <laughs> I, sometimes I just have to come out with, uh, you know, calling out some atrocities that I see. And I do it in yelling format because, you know, I do get pissed off about shit. Especially when I see people that want to continue uh, taking advantage of the less fortunate uh and uh yeah that's uh <laughs> that's not right is it you know and that's why you guys are helping to uh uh point out that as well right so uh, uh i really do appreciate this community i appreciate surfer jim uh, we had a great time in uh uh bitcoin uh miami um and he showed me that picture of him uh, getting absolutely barreled in a massive mexican wave and I'm nowhere near as good a surfer as that, but uh, you know what? Uh, someday we'll surf together, Jim. Maybe we'll ski together and do a whole bunch of different things with these young kids. Uh, you make me proud, okay? So thank you for having me. I love you guys. Thanks, thank you, bro. bro. Um, Have a great night. You as well. Are we you good? As well. Okay. Okay. Thanks a lot. Peace out. Wynikus, give him some horns. Get the horns going. Last ah. horns, and then, we'll, and then we'll wrap this up. Um, there we go. There we go. Dropping the bombs on us. All right, guys. Thank you so much for coming out. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, boys. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. See ya. Uh, everyone in the chat, thank you guys for coming out. Everyone in the Discord, we love you guys. We'll be back next week. We didn't do Teacher's Lounge. So we have the Foss Takeover episode, but we'll be back to... Actually, next week is Meme Tards Takeover, so... We may not do another teacher's lounge. It'll just it'll just be a long, long episode. But guys, thanks for coming out. We love you guys. And this was episode one eleven. Till next time, guys. <laughs>